Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Tonight, we're going to talk about a perspective on people. And I do think it is a treasure, but it also has ramifications on how we interact with other people. But the treasure is to begin to see people differently than we otherwise would. If we are committed to who Jesus is, if we are surrendered to who he is, we begin to see with more clarity some really hopeful things about people, some really true things about people, some things that can shape and change the way we interact with the world in a really specific way. And this just happens to come off really well from the the conversation we were having last week about a life of love, because our perspective on people affects our ability to love other people, yes? And our God's love in us affects our ability, our, affects our perspective on people. It goes both ways. And so I actually want to pick up with one of the verses that we talked about when we said that love is a compulsion. I want to start right there with 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, where Paul says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And and I think what Paul is about to go on to point out, after having simply said this this statement, that that he and his other, his his colleagues, that's when he says us, he's specifically referring, if you follow the context at this moment, he's specifically referring to those leaders sort of with him. He says, why do we do what we do? We do what we do not for ourselves, he says, but because Christ's love compels us. And why does Christ's love compel us? Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. But it's interesting, the way he says it, he's not only talking about a new perspective on ourselves. He is talking about that, right? That changes your perspective on yourself, that Christ died for me, he loved me. As we talked about, the more we're clear on that, the more we're convinced on that, the more we're compelled by the love of Christ in our reaching out to others, that God's love can can overflow through us. But it's interesting, he's also making a point about how we should look at other people. This should also affect our perspective on other people, because If the Jesus who died for us, if he loves us that much, also died for all those annoying people out there, what does it say about our connection to them? How should we see them? If we're willing and even able to begin to grasp that Jesus died for us, that he loved us so much, that he gave up his life for you, and then I say to you that is also true of the person you have a grudge against or don't like or can't stand or irritates you. That then you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? What should my connection to other people be if it's true that Christ died for all? And when he does say he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again, he's talking about the opportunity that everybody has in recognizing that Jesus died for them to embrace that. As we've talked about in many of these times over the, the course of this series, the idea that by faith we accept what Jesus did at the cross. We take the gospel and we embrace it. And as we embrace it, then we begin to recognize our life is not our own. But we also begin to recognize that that same Jesus that rescued us rescued everybody, or at least presented the opportunity for rescue for everybody. He goes on to say this. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. See how he's making the connection to... (laughs) 
How do we look at other people? We no longer look at them the way the world does. And he's going to go on and, and taking what he's going to say as he goes on, plus what he says in other passages, I think part of what he means when he talks about the way the world views other people, the way we view each other, is this whole hierarchy, this whole social class, this whole idea that some people are better than others that is baked into us. You may think you don't have any of that, but you do. <laughs> you know, I, it really was pointed out to me in a, in a startling way once, and my wife totally doesn't remember this, and that's because she's very kind and she wouldn't remember this. And she's told me she doesn't remember this because I've shared this story before. Still don't remember it. I believe you. <laughs> but I remember I, I have a friend who I visited. I was visiting somebody else in prison once, and I ended up connecting with this other person who wanted to speak to a pastor, and so I, I connected with him. And, and one day he got out of prison, and he is he he's an individual who is sort of reached a certain level of emotional maturity, and I just don't think he's ever going to get past that. Which means he's not always fun to be around. And he has a lot of struggles. The guy has been really good about staying out of prison for a decade and a half now. More than that. Yeah. A couple decades, yeah, maybe. Cool. So get kudos to him. Because that's hard to do. But, you know, sometimes he's not kind. And sometimes he's not nice. And sometimes it's not pleasant. And... And, and he, you know, he usually calls when he needs something and not always any other time. And anyway, I thought I was treating him just like I treat everybody else. And one day on the phone, I was talking to him and I hung up the phone and my wife said, was that your friend? And I said, yes, how did you know? And she said, because he's the only person in the world that you're rude to on the phone. <laughs> oh, I thought, wow, wow. And she, I, I can't argue because she, she pegged it. She guessed it. <laughs> I couldn't say no <laughs> because there she was knowing who it was. And I, and I just realized, you know, there is a, and, and it wasn't just that he wasn't kind and pleasant to be around. There was something about his status. He was, he was homeless and he was struggling and he was a prisoner. And, you know, I think it's, it's easy we, we make judgments and evaluations very quickly and easily about people around us, whether what their worth is. We would never say it that way, but I think that's what happens. How worthy of my time and my love and my energy are they? But Paul says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I think that's part of what he's talking about. We're no longer that way. We don't, we don't need to have that perspective. Why? Because Christ died for them. Who are you to decide their worth is less than yours if their worth was measured by the same God of the universe that your worth is measured by? You know, things we say in capitalist society, it's, it's not untrue, we say that things are worth what you're willing to pay for them, right? Well, God was willing to pay a lot for you, and that's good news. Be encouraged by that. But he was also willing to pay a lot for that other person. <laughs> Sometimes that doesn't feel as good. So he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He says, even with Jesus, we once thought he was just a person. But now we're going to see him differently. Then he says, a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago when we talked about identity and substance. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal that he says God is making through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot there, I get that. This is very needy. We could spend an entire Sunday or two just going through this passage. But what I want you to notice is how seeing how Jesus thinks of every human being in the world should have an impact on how we think of every human being in the world. Just to take a couple of kind of examples, right? One thing he says is, yes, you're a new creation, and that is, again, encouraging, and I want you to take that to heart. I want you to believe you're no longer a pig. Remember, you're no longer what you were. You've been changed. You're no longer just this package of presentation. But Paul says, because of this perspective that we have, that Jesus died for us, and we died with him, and we've been changed, because of this, we also don't judge anyone from the old standards anymore, from the old superficial ideas of what's important and not important to the world. No longer do we think of those who are marginalized in our culture as actually deserving to be marginalized. No longer do we think of those who are popular in our culture as simply inherently worth more than those who are marginalized or worth more than us. That's just not the world we live in anymore, he says. It's the world we live in. It's not the world we live in. And then he says this about people. He breaks people down into two categories. There are people who are in Christ and therefore are a new creation. And there are people who are not in Christ and therefore not a, not a new creation. But what's interesting is how we're supposed to respond to each of those two groups of people. Because even there he doesn't say the people in Christ are valuable. The people not in Christ you can just put on the lower tier. Because what he tells us is, first of all, the people in Christ are a new creation whether you like them or not. But the second thing he says, if they're not in Christ, then what is the thing that we are supposed to do with them? Elevate them. Help them recognize who Christ is. Reconcile them to God. Bring them along to be just, just like us in that regard. I think of Jonah. A lot of you know the story of Jonah. Jonah was told by God to go preach judgment to the Ninevites, and we're told he didn't want to do it. And when you read the story, if you're familiar with it, and if you're not, I'll tell you, but if you are, I'll remind you. The reason he doesn't want to go preach judgment is not because he doesn't like preaching judgment. You actually get a pretty clear picture that Jonah kind of enjoys that part of his job. <laughs> the reason Jonah doesn't want to go preach judgment to the Ninevites, and he tells God this directly at the end of the, the story, he says, God, I knew what would happen if I preached judgment to them. I knew that they would repent in fear and that you're the kind of God who once they repented, would then relent and forgive them, and, and then you'd elevate them to the same status I have with you, and I didn't want that. <laughs> but that's what God says here. That's what Paul says. He says that our job is reconciliation. Our job is to bring people in. Our job is to welcome people. Our job is not, we've talked about this many times in many different ways, our job is not gatekeepers of the kingdom. Our job is to give people the keys to the kingdom. It's to invite people in, to reconcile them. Yes, there are people who are not in Christ. They are not yet transformed, and they need to be, just like you. 
before somebody led you through a book, through a word, through a prayer, through a sharing of the gospel with you, through deeds, through example, somehow you did not come, most of you, I dare say none of you, came to the revelation of Jesus Christ merely by a Holy Spirit revelation in your life. But God used other people to bring you that reconciliation message. So just like you, just like me, they need to be reconciled, and that's how we should see them. We are ambassadors of the kingdom, but we're the kind of ambassador as if we're one who has been, who has been freed from prison, and now we go back to the prison to free others. We are not as one who never went to prison, and now we take pity on those poor prisoners. <coughs> we are not as those who have never been a wretch. We are not as those who have never been a sinner. There is no room as ambassadors for Christ, no really rational, honest room for us to ever approach an unbeliever from a standpoint of superiority. Because we did not receive the grace of God because we deserved it more than anyone. And this is part of the new perspective. Everyone is either in Christ or not, and we care about them either way. With our only goal to lift everyone up to the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, there's a lot to think about here. We're not going to go into this verse anymore, but I wanted you to see kind of an overview of, God's, of, of Paul saying that because we understand, we are convinced that Christ died for everyone, that should shift our perspective. We should no longer look at people the way the world does. We're going to break it down a little bit from there by looking at some other verses and thinking about some other ideas, but this is kind of the overview. All right, you ready? You with me? Along the way, we're going to answer two questions. The first question is, what is this new perspective? We've already talked about it a little bit, but we're going to talk about, we're going to break it down a little bit more. The second question is, how does this impact our interactions with people? Now, I want to be really clear. I'm, I have not departed from our formula. I'm still talking about a treasure. I believe this new perspective comes as a gift from God. And I want you to see that the new perspective truly is a gift. It is so much better. Your life will be so much more enriched if you see people through this perspective than if you don't. When we talk about how this impacts our interactions with people, that's a little bit of a should. And we're going to spend less time on that, but I do want to give you some ramifications of what it means to see people differently. Because I think it is helpful to understand how it should affect your interactions. Because if it doesn't, you can at least ask yourself, is there something in my surrender to Jesus that is inhibiting my reception of this treasure? Am I not really seeing the perspective that God would have me see on people? Am I not as convinced as Paul that Christ died for all and therefore all died? But we'll start with what is this perspective. The new perspective, I think, in many ways can be summarized. There's, again, there's a lot to this. I'm going to share a lot of things, and, and a lot of these you're probably going to want to dig in deeper. And I invite you to do so over the course of your life. That's, that's how much deeper you can go. Okay? <laughs> I, I invite you to take these further, but I want to give some, some bullet points. And I think Paul says something more than once in Scripture, which is a pretty good summary of this new perspective, and it relates to what we talked about in Corinthians, that we no longer look at people the way the world does with this automatic breakdown of who's worth more, who's more valuable, and who's less valuable. In our lives, we tend to see some people as more valuable than us, and in comparison, we're always like, we're just not as good as them. And we tend to see some people as less valuable than us, less worthwhile, and we tend to be a little condescending and superior to them. And when forced, we don't like that. Most of us know we shouldn't be there, but some people actually embrace it. We've known people who are happy to say how much better they are than some people, right? 
or who are happy to just be convinced how much worse they are. But even when we don't like it, it still hovers. And I want us to really reach for that gift because it is not enriching to anybody's life to see people that way. It doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't help other people. There's really nothing about that. It doesn't feel good. There's nothing about that worldly perspective that is helpful to us. So I want you to begin to see the perspective that the gospel should give us. And the more we surrender to the gospel, what is that perspective? And Paul says it more than once. I'll just give you a couple of verses. Galatians 3.28, he says this. He says here, and what does he mean by here? He means in the gospel. He says here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What's the point? You always, he had these hierarchies outside of the gospel. In the world, there were people who were Gentile and Jew, and that was a big deal. And the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles, and Gentiles thought they were better than the Jews, but that isn't even a thing anymore. So as they were circumcised and uncircumcised, doesn't matter what kind of how that religion was. There were barbarians. Barbarians were, this was the easy one, right? Everyone who's writing to thought barbarians were bad. <laughs> Scythians, slave or free, even that sort of access of those who are enslaved and those who are free, you know what had perpetuated slavery in the world for so long? It is, it is hard for us to grasp that slavery, the abolition of slavery is a relatively new feature in the history of the world. And why on earth would the ability to keep people as property have been perpetuated for so long? You know what it is, bottom line? The subtle conviction that people who are slaves, that's what they deserve to be. Because they weren't you. They weren't as good as you. In fact, we talked about William Wilberforce a few uh, weeks ago, and specifically for him, he saw in Genesis a picture of the whole human race, which said we're all equal, and we're all of the same value in God's eyes, and that is precisely what led him to be God's instrument in abolishing slavery across the world. And that is not too strong a statement. Read up on William Wilberforce. It will be a, a good exercise if you never have. In Galatians, he says it again, I'm sorry, that, was, that one was actually Colossians. I said Galatians, but that's Colossians. In Galatians, he says it again. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here he gives one he didn't give in the others, but the point is the same. Not that there's no such distinction as male or female, any more than you would say there's no such distinction as the coloration of your skin. I mean, that's a visual thing that's true. But there's no distinction in value. There's no distinction in worth. Do you see that? In, and again, to the culture he's speaking to, there was a huge distinction in worth. I mean, this is, this is the Greeks. Aristotle is famous for having said that women are half-formed men. That they just didn't get completed. <laughs> and children are half-formed women, by the way. So it's, you know, they're really... But they have an well, opportunity... Well, and children have an opportunity to change and grow. Women do not. So that, you know, that's the problem from their perspective. Yeah, that, again, why were women often treated as property? How could you get away with that in good conscience? Because your good conscience told you they were only half-formed men anyway. There's a lot of women in this crowd right now. So. <laughs> Understand, I'm not saying I believe that. No, it's, it's the same thing. He's saying in both of these passages... The gospel gives us a whole new way of looking at each other. And it's a word that, that, that we say a number of different ways. It means no more partiality. 
being impartial towards people. It means no more boundaries or limited access based upon status or outward appearance or race or gender. None of that matters. Why? Because Christ is in all of it. And it would be weird to say that, 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 that gold in, in a one jar is less valuable than the same amount of gold in a different jar. And that's what he's saying. Christ is in you and Christ is in them. And if you think there's any value for you that Christ is in you, well, you have to attribute that same value to Christ being in them. But there is this subtle thing, again, that we do. You know, we think, well, you know, it was, I was more comfortable for Christ to enter into. <laughs> I, was, I was already kind of more shaped up for him. He really had to make huge changes for this person over here. That, 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 I think that, that housing's still a little cramped for Jesus. No, that's true. He says, there's something in our perspective, a gospel perspective that levels the playing field. That we're all in Christ. That all other differences are superficial compared to that. And that it's silly for us to make judgments like these in people's words. These have nothing to do with anything. Rich, poor, free, slave, man, woman, black, white, Hispanic, whatever. All deserve dignity and value and are ultimately the same. Now, there's a word we use for this in our culture. And it's, it's this sense of impartiality that I think we're trying to communicate is an ideal in our culture. It's been an ideal. Granted, as an ideal, it's one we've missed often and still struggle to achieve, but it's been an ideal in our culture since its inception where we're told that all men are created equal. Equality. So it's a good, good word to use as any. Scripture doesn't really use that word, but I think for our purposes, it's just, it's fine. It's this idea of, of we're all equal in some ways. And I want to talk about what those ways are. See, not everyone in the world believes this. And the truth is that even for those who profess a belief in equality among all people, our actions and attitudes are often very different in reality. The truth is, it's a reasonable question to ask this, though. I think one of the reasons our culture struggles with figuring out what equality means and how to make it happen is because so many of our, the people in our culture don't have a basis for telling us equality is a good thing. Is it our Constitution? Is that why it's a good thing? Well, why was it a good thing for them to put in the Constitution? Why was it a good thing for them to put in the Declaration? The truth is, it's reasonable to ask, Upon what do we base this idea of equality? Why are all people of equal worth? Why should I believe that? Don't some people have more to contribute to community? Isn't that clearly true? Some people contribute more, some people contribute less. Some people have more talents, some people have less talents. There's all these philosophical questions, quandaries, games that we play every now and then to, to kind of, they're supposed to enlighten us. I think all they do is mostly confuse us, but they do at least point out our struggles with this, it's, it's the kind of thing where you say, okay, there's eight people on a boat, and one of them's a doctor, and one of them's a mother, and one of them's a, a beggar, and one of them is Hitler, and one of them is somebody else, and how do you, you can only save six of them, how do you decide which two to get rid of? And then you go through, and they're, they're really complicated, and they lead to a lot of discussion. The difficulty is, what we're doing at that moment is literally deciding the worth of individuals compared to the worth of other individuals. And it feels to me like that is way above our pay grade. 
Now, if I'm ever in a situation where I actually have to throw someone off a boat, I'll deal with it then. But, you know, when we don't have to do that, why are we doing that? I think if nothing else, hopefully when you think about those questions, it helps you see actually how ridiculous that is. How little sense it makes for us to be making those decisions at all. And by the way, there are situations that come up in the real world where those decisions do have to be made, and I have nothing but sympathy for the people forced into those situations. Because I don't know how you make them. But the question is, if it isn't based upon contributions, when you have those discussions, that's what comes up. Well, some people have more to contribute. Some people have more life to give, right? We should keep the, the mother and the young child because they'll be around a lot longer and the old doctor has the cure for cancer. Well, he can go. Well, maybe if he has the cure for cancer and no one else has it, maybe he stays. You know, we look for the things they contribute to society. And we say they are inherently of more value and worth. It's very hard for us to get out of that mindset because there's a degree of truth in a communal setting to that, right? But this idea that some people offer less to the universe, that they provide less to the universe because of who they are than, than you or than others, that's a really tricky proposition. And if we're talking about equality, how do we know that isn't true? What is the basis for deciding that's not true? It's true that the verses we just looked at are in one sense limited to telling us that those who are in Christ are all equal of virtue by being defined by Christ. What's interesting, though, is that the essence of this idea of all pe people being equal actually predates that. So it isn't as if Paul is saying this is only true for Christians. In fact, it appears to be true of Scripture throughout Scripture that there's an equality of all people in their worth and their value to God. The fanatic has a treasure of having a reason to believe all of us are equal. By embracing everything that Jesus is, he has a solid foundation for this idea that we like of equality, one that can override the cultural questions we all have. Let's take a look briefly at those. There's several things that the fanatic has. Number one, he believes equality comes to all of us because we all share a created status as image bearers. Think about even the difference between seeing God as a creator who's made us all, whatever mechanism you want to choose, but hear me clearly. Think of the difference between a philosophy, an understanding, a conviction which says that we are all created by God. Therefore, we all have that equal value as a creation of God's, a perfect God's creations, and the philosophy which says, some of us survived because we were stronger, better, and smarter than the rest of them. <laughs> you see how evolution, again, can God use the mechanics of evolution? Perhaps. But if you take out the idea of God creating and being responsible even for that, what you're left with is a philosophy that says those who survive deserve to survive. And those who don't, don't. It's not an accident and again, you can misuse anything. So I'm not saying there's a direct correlation here, but hear me clearly. It's not an accident that, that, that Hitler and others like him who wanted to create a perfect race leaned heavily on evolutionary philosophies. They said might makes right. They said survival of the fittest means that if you don't survive, you weren't fit to survive. But what a difference it is if we say that we're here because God made us here, <laughs> because God decided we'd be here, because God created us. There is an equality in our created status as image bearers. Some of you will remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Genesis, and we, when we talked about identity, 
And we talked about that amazing thing that it does where it says animals were created according to what they are, according to their kind. But when it gets to human beings, God doesn't say, now we're going to create them according to their kind. He says, I'm going to create them according to my kind. I'm going to create them in my image. I'm going to use myself as the template. There is something glorious in that. Glorious enough that God says that distinguishes you from all the animals to such a degree that it is your now, now your responsibility to take care of those animals and the rest of creation. Some people call this original glory, and it's a good name for it. This idea that we were created to be image bearers of God. And to some degree, it is fair to say that all of humanity has been created that way. This idea is reiterated even after the fall. So I think it still applies. It says this in Psalm 139. It says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, says David. Again, you created me. Is there a mechanism to birth and labor and science about how the baby? Of course. But David recognizes behind all of that. And trust me, even in David's time, they understood that this was a mechanism. <laughs> He understood that behind all that was the God who created. So he says, you created me in my inmost being. You created even beyond the, the superficial appearance of who I am. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, says David, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Understand, David is not a guy who didn't struggle with self-doubt. Read up on David in the scriptures. He struggled with self-doubt a lot. So when he says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that's not a big boast that you expect to hear from him. That's like a, a declaration of a conviction he has that God only makes things wonderfully. And the fact that he was created by God is a fearful thing. That God can create human life is a fearful thing. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. David doesn't share this in a psalm and think it's exclusive to him. You understand that, right? He's not like, well, I'm the king, so this is how I'm created. But the peasant is created differently. <laughs> no, we know from David that's not what he thinks. He believes this is true of every human being. Every human being. It's One of the things amazing about David, if you really read his life in scriptures, is how he consistently tends to honor his enemies who died. People who sought to kill him, he requires the entire nation to grieve for them. He's constantly coming out on the side where people are like, what are you doing? That guy is a loser. Because David believes this. He says that guy was created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully as well. Really quickly, just because this has been a really important thing for me over the years. This is a little bit of a side row, but you can take a note of this if you want to just think about this, because it's really challenged me in a really positive way over the last few years. This idea of being wonderful, right? How much would it change your perspective if you saw everyone as wonderful? And I want you to think about that word wonderful. It means literally they produce wonder in you. And what you'll find is with just a small tweak, you'll find that you already wonder at them, Right? Instead of saying, how could you be like that? And why would you do that? And why would you think that way? What if you tweaked that a little bit and said, I wonder why you're like that. I wonder what makes you tick. 
I wonder why that's your reaction. I wonder why that's how you think. And on top of that, I wonder why I'm not like that. I think curiosity is a very mature trait when engaging with others. Instead of assuming you know everything about them and who they are and why they do what they do, what if you were curious and wondered at them? Recognize that God's works are wonderful. We know that full well. I'm going to leave that, but that is one of the perspective shifts that can happen for us. So number one, we recognize equality in everyone because we're all created equal. That's what the declaration says. All men are created equal. Did they forget women in that? It's an argument. Perhaps. Perhaps they meant women too, but perhaps some of them didn't. Perhaps they weren't even clear on whether it just meant all white property-owning men. I actually think we can be pretty confident for some of them it meant all men. People like John Adams are very much on the record with an idea of equality which was out of the norm for his culture. His personal conviction was that smallpox existed as a punishment upon white men for their racism. Now, I don't know that he was right about that. <laughs> but that's where his convictions were. Number two, this one doesn't feel as hopeful or as fun, but it's a really important part of our perspective. We also see people are equal in our shared fall and depraved nature. So again, going back to Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve the choice to delight in him. We talked about this, and they were deceived and persuaded by the enemy instead to seek delight in something else. God said, I am all that is good. I am all that is beautiful. I am all that will give you wisdom. I am everything you need in life. And I want to tell you right now, there's a tree over there which will not give you anything. And the devil said, God is wrong. That tree will give you pleasing fruit that will make you smarter. And God is trying to keep from you the best. But see, God wasn't trying to keep from them the best because he literally was the best. But they were persuaded by him to seek delight in something else. The, the, the idea that God, that something God said was not delightful. And the choice to seek life and goodness anywhere but God to this day when given the choice is, is a way that we repeat that mistake over and over and every human being has done that at some point. This is often called original sin. So I mentioned original glory, which is the idea we're created in God's image. Original sin is the idea that because of what Adam and Eve did, we all inherit that sin. It's a complicated idea. Do not either dismiss or embrace it without really thinking through it. I personally think there's some merit to it, really complicated. But even aside from that, it's very difficult to argue that there's any human being who lives past the age of 10. And let's be honest, I'm being generous. There's, as a parent, I've never met a human being who lived past the age of two who didn't reflect this sin and this choice in their life. Scripture is actually really strong about the fact that we're all equal in this. That all of us have done this. That all of us have sought up things other than God. That all of us are depraved. That's the, the big word that's used among religious circles. It just means corrupted and not good. Scripture is very strong about this. Still in Genesis, this is when it's talking about the flood. You say, how could God do such a thing? Well, this is how God could do such a thing. This is why. It says, the Lord God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
it is hard to think of a more all-encompassing verse. I mean, any wiggle room you want to get is removed, right? He doesn't just say every thought of the human heart. He says every inclination of the thought of the human heart. And he doesn't just say was somewhat evil some of the time. He says was only evil, and he says all the time. This is very, very, very strong. And Scripture doesn't for a moment let up on this idea. What can be confusing is that Scripture also continues to promote the idea that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. How can we contain both this original glory and this original sin at the same time? Well, I love the way Francis Schaeffer explains that Francis Schaeffer is a very smart man, wrote some very interesting books. In one of them, he explains it this way. He says, the idea of total depravity does not mean that there is no goodness in men. But it means there is no unspoiled goodness in men. And here's the example he gives. Let's say that you go to the Louvre, and you go to the museum, and you go to an art museum, and you walk into the art museum, and there's all these works by all these masters, right? Picasso, and, and Van Gogh, uh, and, and, and others. Those are the only two I care about. <laughs> Whistler and sorry, my brain just forgot Monet. that there are other artists. Monet and Manet, thank you. And mayonnaise. Yeah, and the pain yes. in my shoulder. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Let's say, yeah, I did this movement and then I couldn't think of any other. So so no, but let's say you go in and all the masters are there, all the great artists are there, right? And they're all over the, the, the walls. And in the middle of the night you have this ruffian who manages to break through the security somehow, and he's got a ruffian. You know, <laughs> Sorry, I liked it. It was just a kind of surprise. He's got a yeah, it's not a word I often use either. <laughs> he's got a can of spray paint, red spray paint, and he goes through the entire museum and he sprays a line across every single painting, and then he goes down to the storage area for all the paintings and he sprays a line across every single painting, every single sculpture, everything. There is nothing in the entire museum that is not touched with this red paint. It is entirely fair to say that every piece of art in that museum is ruined. And yet, if you go look at the art, will you say, there's no beauty in this art? Will you say, behind the red paint, the red line, I see nothing of the master's work? No, of course you wouldn't. Francis Schaeffer says, this is what total depravity means. We have the image of God. We have that glory and that beauty. It still shines in us. But all of it has been ruined by a red paint across it. So we have an intellect, and the intellect is amazing. But the intellect's got that red paint across it. And we have this emotional capacity. Compassion is wonderful, but it's got that red paint across it. And we have these strong bodies that can do amazing things, but it's got that red paint across it. There isn't a sphere of our life which has not been affected by the corruption and the fall. And here's what you have to understand. Nobody escapes this. Nobody is without the beauty of the master's hand. And nobody is without the vandalism of the ruffian. <laughs> Got to stick with it once I said it. What? Isn't that... That says something, though. It says that at your most self-righteous moments, you got that red line across you, too. <laughs> there is an equality 
that we share in our depravity. That equality that prevents you from being really too superior. Because, see, it doesn't matter what your class or status or abilities or strengths are in the particular culture you're in. You share that exact same depravity. And you share that exact same glory. And you're equal to all humankind in both those things. And they are equal to you. So scripture gives us these two reasons to understand that equality is real. But it doesn't go on, it doesn't stop there, it goes on. It also says that we're all equal in our need of a savior. Because of our depravity, none of us have the ability to save ourselves. None of us have the ability to climb out of that pit. The painting does not have the ability to restore it itself. It requires someone to come in and do the restoration. Somebody who can do the restoration without destroying the glory underneath. We're all equally in need of a savior. And I want to say this too, because this also comes up. This is where we, we sometimes can, can, can kind of get away with this. My testimony of when I became a believer is that I was a good kid before I received the Lord, and I was a good kid after I received the Lord. That's not an exciting testimony. It's not usually how I share it, to be fair. <laughs> but, but it's not exciting. But for years as a young believer, it also confused me. Because it allowed me to hear people who talked about how bad they were before they got saved. And it was very hard not to think, wow, they really needed the Lord. <laughs> I mean, I was close, you know. It's like we're all dirty and we need a bath, but some people are really dirty. And they need a really good scrubbing. But that's going back to that idea that we don't all have that red stain on us. That some of us got painted a lot more than others, which is not, not the way it is. I, I want you to think about it this way, because this is what makes it tricky. It is true. Like, like when I share the gospel with people, one of the most common defenses I hear before people are ready to accept it is, well, I'm not Hitler. Which, by the way, that's a really low bar. <laughs> But secondly, it does show that, right? It's like, well, but Hitler, I can understand why Hitler should be judged. He was less worthwhile than I am. He was more depraved than I am. And here's what I want to say, because this can be confusing. In terms of a community, in terms of our interactions with people, are there certain sins that are more destructive than others? Yes. yes. Of course there are. Within a community and a culture, are there certain people that manage to overachieve in their destructiveness? That's the other thing people would say to me. Well, so you're telling me if I went out and murdered 100,000 people, I could still be saved? And I would say, you are an overachiever. But certainly that's true, right? Within a community, there is room and need to evaluate the destruction that one person has on another. And our levels of judgment and punishment will differ. And that's quite all right even necessary for community to function. But the problem is that when we use the scale against one another so that we can say Hitler's sins are much heavier than mine, that may or may not be true in terms of humanity, probably is. But let's be honest, how much of that is opportunity versus you know, core depravity? We don't know, do we? <laughs> I have often thought that in the right circumstances, the right scenarios, I'm not sure this 
anything I'm incapable of in a bad way. It's a lot I'm incapable of in a good way. <laughs> I want you to think of it this way. Let's picture an old-fashioned scale, okay? Let's say I have an old-fashioned scale, and we're trying to get it to balance. You know what I mean by an old-fashioned? It's like the one Lady Liberty holds. It's, it's this idea where you put things in a bowl on one side, put things in a bowl on the other side, and you're trying to get it to balance so they're exactly horizontal, with the, parallel, I guess, with each other. So let's say we have this old-fashioned scale, and let's say that we're trying to balance good works and bad works, right? So you put good works on one side and bad works on the other. And, and, and then, you know, so you're trying to find out where you are, and you're hoping that you come out with more good works than bad so that things are good. But then along the way, you also want to compare your good works to other people's good works and your bad works to other people's bad works. So you put Hitler's bad works in one bowl and you put your bad works in another bowl. And, and you notice, of course, that when you do that, Hitler's bad works go way, way down. You know, and yours are really light. So you're like, aha, good. That's true. But that's the wrong scale. And it's the wrong comparison. Because here's the reality. Think about it this way. Think about the fact that every bad, every bad work you do, the, the stain across it, has ruined all the good works. And the way we can to think about these good works with our scale is that what it's done is it's made them less substantive, less significant. Let's, in fact, say it's made them bubbles. Let's say that every good work you do, it's real, but it's a bubble, all right? And so you put all the bubbles on one side of the scale, and let's say that you're not Hitler. Can we all stipulate to that? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let's say that you're not Hitler, and so you've got a thousand more bubbles than Hitler has. And I suppose if our scale is fine enough, it can even measure that, right? So that you have, a, you know, a thousand bubbles, I guess I've just changed. Now we're looking heavier is better, but that's okay. You've, you've, you put a thousand bubbles in one side and you put 10 in the other and our scale's really fine, then you'll come out ahead. But the deal is that goodness that hasn't been depraved, the goodness of God is a gold brick. And God has a hundred thousand gold bricks. And he puts them in one side of the scale and you can put as many bubbles as you want on the other side of the scale. Are you ever going to lift that? Are you ever going to raise those gold bricks up? So yeah, you can raise up Hitler, but that's not the comparison. And in that sense, when you compare with other people and you say, we're, we're not equal because I'm better than you, that's fine. You're 999 bubbles better than I am, but you still don't reach a gold brick. And at that level of scale, then we're just equal. It doesn't matter, right? Does that make sense? And that means we're all in need of a savior. We're all in need of some gold bricks <laughs> to make that scale balance. And none of us have gold bricks. We all just have bubbles. Bubbles and lumps of coal. There you go, I just created the bad one. We all just have bubbles and lumps of coal. None of us have bricks of gold. So we need a savior, and we're all equal in that. We all need a savior equally, because my 10,000 bubbles against your 100,000 bubbles are irrelevant when it comes to measuring up to the gold bricks. So we're all equally in need of a savior. We're all equally in need of the same cleansing in that regard. None of us were almost there without Jesus. And I, over the years, have come to realize that even our judgments 
And again, when you're talking about a functional community, this makes perfect sense. All our judgments are just based on external actions because that's really all you can do in a community. You can't start judging people for being evil when they've done nothing evil. But I've realized that actions are not a very good way to judge people. They're, they're an okay way. Again, community-wise, we have to. But I just realized, even when I was a good kid, I was as selfish as Hitler. Just to pick a, a name that, you know, will make sense. <laughs> I was as selfish as anybody. I was as self-interested and self-absorbed. I just didn't have the opportunities. Romans 3, 9 through 17 says this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's talking about the Jews. He says to the Jews, it's a very complicated argument, very briefly. He says, just a paragraph before this, he says, is there any advantage to being a Jew? And he says, yes. So now he says, is there, do we have any advantage? And he says, no. He's talking about two different things. Prior to this, he's saying, is there any perks to being a Jew? And he says, yes. One of the perks is that we were given the law by revelation, which is pretty cool. Then he says, another one of the perks is that the Messiah came through us. That's kind of nice. But then he says, but when it comes to our worth and when it comes to our value and it comes to our need for a savior, do we have a leg up? Do we have a few gold bricks already because of those things? And he says, nope. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul is saying this is true of every human being. And he uses really strong language. Just because you were raised as a good Jew and you've kept the law? Because Paul, who's writing this, says later, and I think in a moment of honesty, when it comes to keeping the law the way the Pharisees were supposed to keep the law, I was flawless. You couldn't find anything in me that was not perfect. But Paul says this of himself. Even though that's true, my tongue's practiced deceit. My throat was an open grave. The poison of viper was on my lips. My mouth was full of cursing and bitterness. My feet were swift to shed blood. And he says, it's true of you. Now, not those literal actions, but that need for a savior is the same for you as for everybody and the same for them as for you. There is equality in our need of a savior. We all need a savior equally because we all need a savior completely. And then he says, and this is really good news based upon the couple of bad equalities we saw there, we're all equal in our access to Jesus. Now this is really important. And this is directly tied to our previous idea, but it's actually hard for us to grasp for one simple reason. The idea of equality to access, I think it's impossible in our world. Even in the most just society, even in a completely just society, not everyone can have equal access to everything. Some will always be stronger. Some will be more charming. Some will be more full of whatever talent lets them gain access in that particular moment, that particular culture. 
even where communities work to level the access, and a just community would do that, it's virtually impossible. And even in leveling the access, you only emphasize how people don't have equal access to begin with. Do you see that? You're only acknowledging there's something about you that means you don't have the same access that I do, and that's why I have to do something to try to get you equal access, which means we're acknowledging it is not true. So the idea of the gospel being equal access, everybody can get to it. There is no privilege. There is no partiality. There is no benefit for someone who's stronger, richer, smarter, more powerful, more talented, nicer, kinder, works harder, that none of that matters in the gospel is hard for us to believe. It's also not something we always want to believe because, again, it removes your ability to boast. Paul says this a lot in Scripture. That if the gospel gives you room to boast, it's not the gospel. We sneak it in there, though, right? We think I was smart enough to respond to Jesus. I was more faithful. Talk about commitment. I was committed to Jesus. I really would like to remove the idea of commitment, the word, not the idea. I would like to remove the word commitment from the idea of, of receiving the gospel and replace it with surrender. Because it's harder to boast about being the best giver-upper. <laughs> yeah, the weird thing is, as soon as I bring that up, I think of people who are like, yeah, I won't surrender to Jesus of anybody. I'm like, okay, I guess you can, you can boast about anything. <laughs> no, but I do think there's a part of us that, that has a really hard time understanding actual equal access because it is like the Trinity, one of those things we just actually haven't seen and maybe can't see this side of heaven. I think, in fact, this is why Jesus says at one point, very famous verse, uh, somebody takes a, some perfume and starts anointing Jesus because he is God and he is about to die and he is the Messiah and they love him and they want to show how much they love him and they start to anoint him and Judas gets all bent out of shape, says that money could have been given to the poor. We learn later that Judas's motivation was that he wanted to keep the money for himself so it wasn't even, a, you know, he wasn't even a... Uh, righteous as he pretended. But the point is, when he says that, that money could have been given to the poor. Jesus says something which is easy to misunderstand, can sound harsh, but I don't think it is. He says, the poor you will always have. But here's what you have to understand. In scripture, the word poor doesn't mean without money. Now, in that context, it does. But that's not the full use of the word poor. In scripture, you know what the, mean, the use of the word poor means as compared to rich? It means having no access it means that within any culture, you have poor people and you have rich people. The rich people are those who have the power and have the access, and the poor people are those who don't. And I think Jesus is saying, you will always have unequal access in this world. It's just going to be true. I don't think he's happy about it. It's just the nature of the fall. It's the nature of our judgments. It's the nature of our deciding what's worthwhile. It's the nature of trying to figure it all out. I'm not even blaming anybody. I mean, there are egregious examples where, we, where people prevent access, but even when we try, it's, and we should try, should always try, we should keep trying, but it will always be that the poor will always be among us. Because as long as the earth is this present earth, there will always be those with less access, those who are less talented, less strong, less beautiful, less whatever the thing is, and it can change from culture to culture. There'll be less of whatever that thing is in that culture that gives you access to whatever power is. 
But see, this is not the case with Jesus and the gospel. Paul goes on to say this. This is a continuation of the verse we just looked at. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Their access will not be by how hard they work. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. All the law does is give you access to how bad you are. <laughs> but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then he says it again. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. His point is, there is no benefit in being a Jew or a Gentile or rich or poor or a woman or a man or able-bodied or disabled or ugly or beautiful or smart or less smart or emotionally mature or emotionally stunted or anything else. There is no privilege in the gospel. Everyone has fallen short and everyone is lifted up by Jesus and only by Jesus. I think it is a great sadness and a great irony that the same devil who has so effectively persuaded people to see goodness in places other than God has also hoodwinked us in our culture and in many cultures, once again, by turning this beautiful truth of equal access into the opposite idea in people's minds of an exclusivity. The argument that people make is that having only one way to God is exclusive and it rules out all the people who don't have access to that one way. But the point they're missing is that scripture tells us Jesus is available everywhere at every time to every person. It may not look the same. That's not the point. I think scripture is clear that people come to the gospel, they come to the Lord through Jesus, but not always by knowing the name of Jesus. We know this is true of everyone in the Old Testament. I think it's also very possibly true of everyone now. That if there are people who never hear the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean they cannot, they do not have access to Jesus. Because Jesus is not a name. He is a person. Amen. And he makes himself available to everybody, everywhere, every time. So the argument is not one of exclusivity. That says that only some people have access. It is the opposite. It says that you don't have to be particularly smart. You don't have to be particularly religious. You don't have to be particularly beautiful. You don't have to be particularly wealthy. That idea of rich access, poor not access, there is none of that. In fact, Jesus says, spends a lot of time in the gospel saying, if anything, I am increasing the access for the poor. I, I think it's hyperbole. I don't think he actually is. I think it's actually equal. I think what does happen is that people who are rich, in that broad sense of having access, get used to the idea that their particular brand of access is what gives them access to everything. And Jesus says to them, if you think you're going to get access to me the same way you got access to the power and the government, you're going to miss that the access is only through me. Jesus is the way, not in the sense of exclusion, but of joyous inclusion, because no matter who you are, where you are, or what you are, you have access to this way. When it says, you know, the, the path is wide and the gate is broad that leads to destruction and the path is narrow that leads to salvation, if your reading of that is that Jesus is limiting the number of people who can come to him, you have not read enough scripture. 
If, on the other hand, you read that to say that many people will refuse to go in the gate that is Jesus and instead will go to all of these other options because there are an infinite number of other options, whatever human mind can create, and in that sense it's broader, then you're reading it properly. But the access is not limited. The fact that it is all through Jesus, all the same for every single person, is proof of how different it is from anything else in the world. It's part of the beautiful, subversive nature of the gospel, and it cuts across all times and biases and partialities and definitions of rich in any culture. So to recap, our perspective on people is that we're all equal in our created status as image bearers. We're all equal in our shared fall and depraved nature. We're all equal in our need for a savior, and we're all equal in our access to Jesus. And that should change our perspective on everybody we encounter. I'm going to very quickly, because I don't want to make this the main point, I'm going to very quickly give you the implications of these, this. If we think this way, how would it affect the way we treat other people? How does this impact our interactions? As I said, I'm going to do this quickly. If you want to, write these down and think about them, because I think there's some deep, I'm not giving me credit, this is scripture, <laughs> I think there's some deep thoughts here that we're not going to go into. So if you want to think through these a little more, grab the podcast or make a note right now. Because I think these are worth thinking through. Is this my interaction? And if not, what is happening if I not received the treasure of a proper perspective of people because I haven't embraced the truth of my access to the gospel being free, gracious, from God and not of my own making? There is a freedom, an incredible freedom in understanding the grace that saves us. There is an also, also an incredible shock to the reality that that is the same freedom and grace that everyone else gets. <laughs> Here are how this impacts our interactions. Number one, we honor everyone's dignity. Every human being has the divin, divin, the divine image of God. Everyone has been created wonderfully and fearfully. That means every human being that walks or has ever walked the planet deserves a certain level of honor. I want to be clear. I did not say respect. You can honor someone's dignity as a human being without respecting their actions or behaviors or thoughts. Yes. I think about an interaction I saw when I was in high school. I had a friend whose father was a severe alcoholic. And he did not respect his father, nor do I think he should have. Certainly not for that. But I remember watching how I remember a particular moment where his father was embarrassing, was drunk as a skunk, behaving just completely embarrassing, shameful ways. And I watched how this son helped his father get home. Sounds like a simple thing. But it would have been so easy for that son to regard his father as worthless, to have turned his back on his father, pretended to not know him. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have shamed him if he had done this. <laughs> but he helped his father get home, partly because he wanted his father to be safe, partly because he didn't want to be embarrassed anymore, but I think also partly 
because he wanted to spare his father the embarrassment that he was giving himself. He honored that man's dignity without respecting his behavior. I think that is something we should all be doing. C.S. Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. This does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have taken, who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. He's trying to give us that idea of honoring the dignity of the immortal beings that we all are. This also means we refuse to use people merely as a means to an end. You know, philosophers have struggled this, with this for years. They all acknowledge there's something wrong when we use people as a means to an end. When we exploit people. We need to value each person for their own sake. Now, this is complicated, and I'm not going to get into it. This is one of those you're going to have to wrestle with. Because I do think interdependence and, and recognition that we're not islands, that we need each other, and we benefit from each other is good. Right? Sometimes we are means to each other in a sense. And I think that's good. But codependence, by definition, which we've all begun to recognize is not a healthy thing, codependence is actually about using other people for our gain. And that's just one of the small ways we do it. There are so many interactions we have which are exploitive and only exploitive. Which are just so that I use you to make me feel better. Or I use you to enrich me. Or I use you to make myself look better. Using other people for our ends is not okay. They are more than that. They are people. We believe every, anything is possible in humans even redemption. The scripture says that love believes all things. And the way I think to re understand that is clearly not that love is gullible, right? It doesn't mean love actually believes all things. There's some conspiracy theories out there I'm pretty confident have nothing to do with love. But I think it means love believes all possibilities in people. Everyone and anyone can be redeemed, redeemed, because everyone and anyone has the same access to the gospel. To believe the perspective that God has on people is to believe that people can change. Now you can argue they can only change because of God. That's fine. But they can change. It's interesting that when Jesus says, there's that famous verse, nothing is impossible with God, that is directly in context in relation to the redemption of people. Because he says it's hard for rich men to enter the kingdom. Why? Because they think they can do it through their own access. And Peter says, well, if it's that hard, then how can anyone be redeemed? And that's when Jesus says, nothing is impossible for God. He's talking specifically about being able to redeem the most irredeemable. Should affect our interactions with people. Number four, we treat every life as sacred. Every life is fearfully and wonderfully made. Jesus says at one point in the Old Testament, it's one of the most amazing verses because it's so weird. And the only reason it can be there is for us to learn from, because the animals will never read it, even though it's about the animals. He says this, every animal who takes a human life will be held accountable for that human life. Isn't that weird? 
Every lion who takes a human life is going to be held accountable. I don't even know what that means because I don't know what happens to animals. But, but God says it. He says in Genesis, every animal that takes a human life will be held accountable for that human life. Again, he's not writing that because the lion is going to hear that. He's telling that so we understand the value of human life that God puts on human life. I, I'm not going to get into politics of this. Because I guarantee you on both sides of the political aisle, I can personally point to places where I think both sides do not treat human life as sacred. And neither of you will like it. So I'm not going to do that right now. But I want you to wrestle with that. What does it mean if every human life is sacred? What does that actually look like? And finally, we exalt all people. Now, let's be clear. Exalt and exult are not the same word. Okay, exalt means praise and worship. We do not do that with any people. <laughs> but we exalt all people means, according to the, the dictionary definitions, which I hate when preachers do that, but in this case it's actually useful. It means one of three things. There's actually three definitions for exalt. Number one, it means to hold in high regard. Number two, it means to raise to a position of greater power than they previously had. Like if you're promoted, you're exalted. Okay? And number three, it means to make them more noble of character than they previously were. I don't know how you do that exactly. I didn't get that. Yeah, me either. <laughs> but here's what I want you to think about. Here's some ways I think we exalt all people within a community. Number one, we defend and protect the vulnerable. We take those who have less access, the people who are more at risk. And scripture is very clear about this. If you happen to have more access than someone else, your job with that access is to grant them more access, not less. Your job is not to push them down and walk over the top of them as the prophet Amos accuses the rich people of doing. Your job is to exalt them, to raise them to a position of higher power than they previously had, to promote them. So you exalt the vulnerable and unprotected by defending them and protecting them and raising them up. And you challenge the capable. Then you have the people around you that are capable. They have access. They have power. They're doing really well. But you challenge them. You hold them accountable because you hold them in high regard. You say, I believe better of you. So you challenge them to do better. And that's how you exalt them. You dignify them by expecting more of them than they've expected of themselves. And you admire the admirable. So there are people that have more access than you and more power than you. And in that sense, they are above you. But you know what our temptation is? And you see this culturally. You cannot tell me you do not see this as an epidemic in our culture. Envy and jealousy. We love to tear down the powerful, don't we? But if they also are sacred, if they also are equal to us, that doesn't mean that we prove their equality by tearing them down. We exalt them too. Now, not in the way that they want to be exalted necessarily, right? And we don't exalt them. But I do think there's great benefit in admiring the admirable, in exalting those who have the character that we want and who have the access and the power and pointing to them and saying, that's a good person. That's what we should aspire to be. My temptation is jealousy. Just be totally open and transparent with you. I see pastors succeed where I failed. My first response is, they should fail. 
I want to tear them down. More frequently, by the grace of God, my second response is, you knucklehead, we're on the same team. Exalt them, don't tear them down. So, those are the implications. We honor everyone's dignity. We refuse to use people merely as a means. We believe anything is possible in humans, even redemption. Cynicism. Cynicism really, there's a huge gap between being stupid and being cynical. Right? I hate it when I'm like, cynicism is not a good thing. And people are like, well, I don't want to be stupid. I'm like, are those the options? Hmm. I really don't think cynicism has a place in Christianity. Because we have a God who says anything is possible. We treat every life as sacred, and we exalt all people. And that's a perspective on people. That we're all equal. We're all equal of value. We're all equal of worth because God has decreed it so. Because the God who made us, the God who challenged us, and the God who gave up his life to purchase us back has decided we are worth all of that. And not just you, but everybody around you. I happen not to be a fan of, and, I, and there are people that I love who will disagree with this statement, and even agree with everything I've said and disagree with this statement, but just to give strength to what I'm saying, I'm not a big fan of the theology, the Calvinist point, which says that God only, that Jesus only died for the people who would receive him. Their argument is that Jesus is efficient, and, he, and it doesn't make sense. It, it like makes his death meaningless if he died for people who don't accept it. I, I don't like that, and the reason I'm not a big fan of that is because it does seem to say that some people, no matter how we slice it, no matter how we try to stay away from this, it's very difficult to hear that and not think, well, some of us were more deserving of that death than others. And I think scripture says he died for all men and women and children, all those of the human persuasion. I believe it says that he desires the death of no one, but would rather that they all turn and repent and come to him. And that's why I believe he provides access to all people and woos them all and calls them all and saw them all worthy of his death. The God of the universe decreed that you were valuable enough to give up everything. But he also decreed that that person that you can't stand was valuable enough to be worthy of everything. And that person you barely know that you see on the street that you walk by without a thought deserves the same dignity of the original glory that you do. And that person that you think is so much better than you that you're intimidated by them, they share in the depravity of man that you have. We're all equal. We're all valuable because of that. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.